This is the We the People, Our American Story podcast. My name is Tina McCafferty. Join me every week to hear the remarkable stories of veterans, combat survivors, first responders, and American patriots in their own words. If you are pro-freedom and pro-America, you are in the right place. We the People, Our American Story is the podcast for Americans who fiercely and unapologetically love America. Not all women wear pearls and sensible shoes to work. Some wear dog tags and combat boots. And I could not think of a better quote when I saw this to introduce my next guest. Welcome to We the People, Our American Story, Miss Erin Orga. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Good. Now, would you like me to call you Erin or Arrow? It doesn't matter. Either one is fine. I'll answer to both. (laughs) I like that. You're easygoing. That'll make this podcast episode fantastic. I want to start off with your dreams as a little girl, because you had many dreams. And if I can just spout off a few of those, your dreams were to either become a professional roller coaster rider. That was my favorite, by the way, an Olympic figure skater or a NASA astronaut. Yes. I went through various periods of each of those. (laughs) So those weren't all at the same time, or were they? Um, No, the figure skating kind of overlapped the other two, but the, the roller coaster rider kind of led into a NASA astronaut. Now, before we start off on your journey as um, a fighter pilot, I have to ask, what is your favorite roller coaster? Do you have a favorite roller coaster? Yeah, so uh, part of, I guess, the story of how I even got into roller coasters, I live outside of Pittsburgh. It's a wonderful place to raise kids. One of the reasons why I ended up moving back after I had my son and one of the perks of living in the Pittsburgh area is we have our own little amusement park. It's not huge like um, Cedar Point or Bush Gardens, but it's called Kennywood. And they've probably got, I don't know, five or six different roller coasters. And probably the most well-known, it's a old ro- wooden roller coaster. It doesn't go upside down or anything exciting like that, but it's called the Thunderbolt. And it was my favorite to ride growing up. We have a wooden roller coaster here in Utah at our park called Lagoon. I can't ride that thing anymore because it hurts, don't you think? <laughs> Those hurt as you get older. They're not as comfortable. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so you wanted to be a NASA astronaut. That came from your love of riding roller coasters? Yeah, I wanted to be a professional roller coaster rider and then uh, some adult told me that there was no such thing as a professional roller coaster rider and I was devastated. And so I was trying to figure out what else I could do that was similar to roller coaster riding. And my dad suggested being a NASA astronaut. (laughs) So I looked into that and it was kind of pretty much similar types of things. So you grew up in Pennsylvania then? Yeah, outside of Pittsburgh. Okay. And did you have any, do you have any siblings? I have a younger brother. And do you have any history of military in your family? Both my grandfathers were in World War II. Uh, One was in the Army, one was in the Navy. And really, that was about it. They served their time and got out and do not have really any kind of bigger history in the family than that. So let's pivot here then. So your dream of becoming a professional roller coaster rider has been squashed. (laughs) You are devastated. So now you have to move on to something else. So you move on to a NASA astronaut. Was that still while you were in high school? Or when did this? No, that was actually in grade school. So when I was in fifth grade, my science teacher, Mr. Gary, was a huge fan of NASA. And this was right at the time of the teacher in space program. Mm. And if he'd probably been 10 or 15 years younger, he would have applied. But we followed Krista McAuliffe and all of that for that entire year. And the morning of January 28th, he rolled a TV into our classroom 
and we watched and probably would have gone down a little differently in this time and place with parents and things like that. But as soon as the accident happened, he turned it off and said, okay, they're going into space. But I'd kind of done enough research. I was just kind of looking at him like, uh, there's something seriously wrong here. 11, 11 years old and you understood what had happened. Yeah. I, I Like I said, I, I really wanted to be an astronaut. I had learned that all of the shuttle pilots and shuttle commanders because had to be in charge type a personality <laughs> we're all fighter pilots and military test pilots and so that's how I kind of eventually got into being a fighter pilot did you go the aviation route with the military was still the dream of becoming an astronaut yes wow and how were you at math <laughs> <laughs> I did okay. It wasn't my favorite subject, but I did okay in it. <laughs> okay. But a lot of that is all computerized, isn't it? I mean, you still need to know, but a lot of it's computerized now. It is. It is. And, uh, um, you know, when they take, there's a specific test that the military gives for people that want to be a pilot to test your aptitude. And a lot of it is looking at gauges, right? And being able to interpolate or extrapolate what's on a gauge because things aren't always right at a marker. So there's a lot of that and kind of doing some of the quick math types of things in your head. When you graduated from high school, you went to Notre Dame. Is that correct? I did. Although okay. I had every intention of going to the Air Force Academy all the way up into two weeks before I had to turn in my decision. What was the deciding factor in that? Well, so my dad and my uncle both went to Notre Dame. My grandfather was uh, Italian Catholic, absolutely loved Notre Dame, convinced my dad and my uncle to go there. I had a cousin that went there. So I've been going to Notre Dame football games since I was nine months old. There's a picture of my parents holding me in front of the Golden Dome when I'm nine months old. I applied out of obligation, although my dad was really good. He never asked me to apply. He never pressured me to apply. I think because he thought I was going to the Air Force Academy and he was completely fine with that. But about two weeks before I had to turn in my decision and I, I got into both the Academy and to Notre Dame, we took a trip out there. One of my girlfriends who was on the basketball team with me was also a really good soccer player. And she was thinking about walking on. She hadn't visited the campus. And so my dad, you know, volunteered to take her and her dad out and, and give them a tour of campus. And while we were there, I realized that I had been kind of comparing everything to Notre Dame. I compared the Air Force Academy to Notre Dame when I went out to, to look at it. I compared some of the other schools that I had applied to and, and did visits with to Notre Dame and got back from the trip and just kind of said, why am I not going there? And there was a reason. It had to do with pilot slots. and But there had been a change. You know, the aviation industry is very cyclical. They go from oh my God, oh my God, we need pilots, let's hire, yeah. let's hire, let's hire, to, okay, we've got way too many pilots, we're not going to hire. And for our, most of the 80s and early 90s, the Air Force had plenty of pilots. And so they weren't, unless you went to the academy, there was a very low probability that you were going to get a pilot slot. So that was one of the reasons why I wanted to go there. But by the time I was a senior in high school, that had kind of turned around and you could see that it was swinging the other way. So I decided to take a chance. And honestly, it's it's the best decision I've ever made in my life. And when you started at Notre Dame, was it your intention to fly fighter jets? Did you know that yes. right up front? Oh, yes. I, I That was my intention all along was to not only get a pilot slot, but to do well enough to be able to get a fighter slot so that I could go be an astronaut. Wow. Okay. So you get through Notre Dame and... You're taking flying lessons at this time or no? Not till after I had you graduated? Basically zero time in any aircraft before I went to pilot training. I think I'd gone up maybe twice in little Cessnas, you know, as exploratory type of things, but I had zero training. I was also kind of in a weird spot where there had been some accidents and, and usually they would send the uh, pilot students to do some soaring classes. So they would have some time before they went to pilot training, but they'd had some accidents and those aircraft were basically grounded. And so I went to pilot training with zero time. So that was through the Air Force. And does that mean yes. they paid for all of it? My pilot training? Yes. Yes. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, yeah. So I, I went to Notre Dame on a ROTC scholarship. Mm -hmm. And when I graduated, I went into the Air Force and I had a pilot slot. And I was you, already in the Air Force when I okay. went to pilot training. And you graduated 
as one of only two females with a degree in aerospace engineering. What exactly does that mean, aerospace engineering? For us really stupid people like me, <laughs> can only guess that uh, it just sounds like something that's way above <laughs> what I can do. So it's uh, kind of a, the, the both worlds. You could take it in a couple of different ways, but we did, uh, in addition to like aviation and airplane engineering, we also did some astronautics and um, aeronautics space type of things. So we got kind of a foundation in both of those. And the other female that graduated with me actually went to work for was it Boeing or Lockheed Martin on one of their satellite programs. That's impressive. When you started with your training, how did you know that you weren't going to be prone to motion sickness? Or was that something that you had to figure out on the way? You kind of have to figure it out. Now, I've never had any problems, never had any problems with roller coasters. I have gotten to Cedar Point, you know, done lots of the roller coasters up and down and all of that. Never had a problem with that. You know, never had any motion sickness in the, in the car. I'm an avid reader. And so I'd be in the backseat reading and never had any, any problems with that. So, but until you actually go and do it, it it's really hard to know. And see, mine isn't roller coasters. Mine are things that go round. So my yeah. worst ride at Disneyland is the teacups. Oh. I've never gotcha. been on the teacups. It just makes me so sick. Part of it is learning to where to keep your eyes. If you think about yes. ballerinas, right, they keep their eyes, you know, steady. Having flown a bunch of people in the backseat that don't typically fly, one of the things, and, and having backseaters, right, I had um, weapon system officers in my backseat, and they would get sick all the time because they would be heads down in the cockpit, maybe looking at the targeting pod or at the oh. radar or something. And we're doing all this maneuvering. And so their ears are telling them one thing, their eyes are telling them something completely different and their stomach's going, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> right. And so a lot of times we'd, be, we'd tell the guys and, and tell people that we'd fly, you know, look outside, all kinds of interesting things in the cockpit. Yes, we know it's really cool, but really for your own safety, look outside. <laughs> What was your journey like to become a pilot? What kind of training does that entail? The first six months, everyone in the class flies the same aircraft. It used to be a T-38 Tweet, a really high-pitched engine sound, which is why they called it the Tweet. Now it's a, a T, what they call a T-6 Texan, and it's a turboprop. So everyone does six months of initial training, and you you learn to fly, you learn to land, you learn to do basic navigation, you do some instrument work, you even do some formation work. And then at the end of the six months, uh, they rack and stack you based on how you did on your check rides and things like that. And they put up a board and there's the, the next section of training where they split people off and you track select and some, the people that are gonna go fly cargo planes, tanker planes, heavy aircraft, go and fly a, a T-1. The guys that are going to go to fighters and bombers go off to T-38s, people that are going to helicopters, you know, go and, and do something else. And they start with the the number one person in the class who did the best. And they go, what, you know, which one do you want? And that one comes off the board and they just work their way down until everyone has track selected. So after that, you have six more months of whatever you track selected into. And then at the end of the year, they do a similar thing to the track selection, except now instead of just you know, a T-1 or T-38, they'll have all the different aircraft in the Air Force inventory that's available, and they call it a drop. So not every aircraft is always available at every drop, but whatever's in there, they put up, and then they start again. And whoever did the best in that six months of training, they go first, and they get to pick their aircraft until everyone has something assigned. You definitely had a dream. You knew which <laughs> airplane you wanted to fly. So you made a big concession, correct? So that you could fly that plane in time. I did, yes. Uh, everyone knew I, again, had been kind of dreaming this and planning this since I was in fifth grade and really wanted to fly the F-15E Strike Eagle. So it's a two-seat air-to-ground version, you know, karma, universe at work. Uh, after I got done with college and went to the Air Force, I had about a year before I went to pilot training, and they called it being a casual lieutenant. The Air Force would just stick you somewhere at, in a squadron, flying squadron, until you could go off to pilot training. And I got to be in a, an F-15E squadron, which I thought was just absolutely fortuitous. 
so again, cemented that I, that I really wanted this aircraft. And everybody knew that. The problem is, is there's not a whole lot of F-15Es in the Air Force inventory, especially compared to the, the F-16. They don't come down very often in drops. And the other part was they have a longer training cycle than the other fighter aircraft. So instead of six months, it's nine months. And that just adds to the fact that they, they don't come down very often in drops. And about two days before we were supposed to make our selections, my my squadron commander pulled me into his office and he said, I'm going to do something I'm not supposed to do. You have to keep keep the secret. Do not tell anyone I'm telling you this. He said, I'm going to tell you the drop and I'm going to tell you why. And so he laid out, you know, what was in there. He goes, there's, there's not a 15E. There's an F-16. There's a 15C. There are four A-10s and there's one T-38 fate. And he just kind of let me process that. And he said, and you know, you know where you are. And I said, yeah, I'm third. <laughs> and he said, you know what the first two people are going to take, right? I said, yes, the 16 and the 15C. And he said, well, how do you feel about flying an A-10? And I said, I don't know. And he said, I really want you to take the T-38. I think one, he wanted a female instructor. Um, two, they were usually the people at the bottom of the class ended up with those. They weren't usually, you know, highly, highly favored or highly picked. So I think he wanted someone higher in the class. But, you know, what really sold me was he said, you can try again for a 15E in three years when you're done instructing. He's like, I can't promise you that, but you'll at least have another opportunity. And so that that's what swayed me. <laughs> How young are you when you're flipping, flipping through magazines or when you're looking online or what have you to look at these planes when I imagine a lot of other little girls are looking at fashion and you're looking at airplanes. And what yes. was it that's so special about this plane that you had to fly this plane? Yeah, I, you know, all through middle school and, and high school, I, I did my research. I went to space camp. Like I've, I really wanted to be a NASA astronaut and did all the research and planning for that. So inside uh, your locker... Well Instead of having like the latest heartthrob, did you have jets in yours? Yes. I had space shuttle pictures. <laughs> That's funny. Yes. So you did a lot of research. Yeah. Um, I really liked the fact that the 15E was um, an air to ground plane. And people would say, well, you could have taken an A-10 and, and that's an air to ground plane. But it's really the A-10 is primarily air, just a ground mission. They're really there to support the troops. The, the strike is truly um, air-to-air and air-to-ground. They're what's called a self-escort. So when uh, you go in and do missions, if you think about the first Iraq the Gulf War, there were no other planes that came, you know went in with them. They're able to fight their way in, drop their bombs, and then fight their way back out. They don't need escorts. Uh, like some of the other like bomber planes and things like that. And, and they have a lot more gas. They're able to carry pretty much every munition in, in the Air Force inventory. So all of that really kind of went into it. I read a little bit up on you, Aaron, and <laughs> your call sign is Arrow. And when yes. I read, it said why it was given to you. But I don't want to say it unless it's true. I heard it's because of Aerosmith. Correct. Yes. And you do not get to choose your call sign. I'm sure probably Wiz explained this in his yes. podcast. He wouldn't, this is not me, like... he wouldn't tell me why he was given that name. He gave a little background, but he wouldn't go into it. So I can only guess. But he yeah, just... I, that's his that's his story to tell. <laughs> so, but um, yeah, you, you're you're given it. It's not a, you know, Top Gun Maverick. There's not really cool call signs, but I got mine because at the time I was married and my last name was Smith. And so, you know, people tended to call you by your call sign and your last name. So it kind of flowed together. But they really thought it was funny because Aerosmith also sings a song called Dude Looks Like a Lady. <laughs> so it wasn't like they were your favorite band, anything like that. No, nothing, okay. no, nothing like that. I mean, I, don't, I like them. Don't get me wrong. But uh, yeah, that was the, the genesis of it. When are you giving your call sign? How does that work? You have to become what's called operational. So you do all this training. You go for a year of pilot training. Then you go to your major weapon system and you go through, like I had to go through strike eagle training for nine months before I actually 
got done and then you go to what's called your operational squadron these are the squadrons that deploy that go into combat and then you have training in there and you have to go through a whole bunch of things before they consider you mission ready and you have to take a check ride so until you're mission ready you do not get a call sign once you've become mission ready they can give you a call sign at any time and it really just kind of depends on when you screw up or do something that <laughs> that really makes them kind of think of a a name for you who's who's them who gives you this squadron okay the entire squadron okay yeah so uh you know it's one of those things they have get-togethers on on Fridays and they'll talk about it as a squadron and when enough people in the squadron agree on on a name you you get christened what was it like the first time you sat in the f-15 and took off oh it was uh, such a rush it was amazing and you know it's not really a different kind of takeoff from what i'd been doing for years you know as an instructor but a strike eagle is is so much larger than a t-38 that it's just kind of awe-inspiring it was awesome and how did you feel as being one of the few women in the air force flying these planes did you get any pushback? Uh, yes. Yeah. There were probably more than a handful of people who told me throughout my career that they didn't think women should be flying fighters. I got it a lot in our crew brief. I'd have a, a backseater. And um, once you get done briefing, you know, a particular flight as a as a formation, you go out with, you know, two, three, four aircraft. So when you're done with kind of the flight brief, you go to a crew brief and you talk to you, your, you know, the, the backseater about how you're going to run the radar, how you're going to do this and that, all that kind of stuff. And I, I, a lot of, a lot of people at that some point during that would say, just so you know, I don't think women should be flying fighters. To which I would say, that's great. But if I say eject, 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 you better pull the handles. <laughs> Were you able just to put that out of your mind? Like, who cares? Uh, yes. So the Air Force, the military in general, is very good at teaching you to compartmentalize. Mm-hmm. So there were lots of things throughout my time. Some of it mission-related to the Air Force, some of it personal-related that got put in a box and got filed away. The problem is, is that the Air Force and the military does a really crappy job of teaching you how to deal with that and at an appropriate time, right? I completely understand in the moment when you're flying a mission, you need to be able to, to put that stuff aside and focus on, on what you're doing. But at some point in time, you have to deal with it because if you don't, stuff starts leaking and dripping and cracking and exploding. <laughs> Their You're focus not. is all about the muscle memory because they have to get you through the fight or what is ahead of you. And then we'll yes. worry about the mental stuff later, but then they never do. And then you're out and then they're like, okay, good luck. And that's about yeah. it, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. This is why so many of our military veterans struggle when they get out of the military. When did your dream change for not becoming an astronaut or what happened there? Uh, kids. Yes. <laughs> or kids. That will do it. <laughs> yes, it will. And I, are you okay uh, with that? Yes. Um, so, I love my son. He's amazing. Did you ever take a ride on the Vomit Comet? Is that what no, I did it? not. Okay. They do. <laughs> yeah. I'm guessing you would have been okay. I hope so. I would like to think I would be okay. And with the training for the pilots, do you have to do that? You know what I'm talking about. That seat that um, you get in? No. Okay. Yeah. So the astronauts used that. Um, it was in right. the movie Space Camp. And uh, when I went to Space Camp, I actually got to do that um, machine. Although you don't it? actually get to. Oh, it was awesome. It was so cool. <laughs> I would have been passed out or thrown up all over. So people like you that can do that, I admire so much because it's not even in my realm of possibilities. Just thinking of it makes me sick. You were in the Air Force then for 10 years. 
You yes. flew 50 combat missions in Iraq. How many deployments did you have? I just ended up doing the one. Um, and it was an extended one. Uh, they were supposed to last three months. I think we were there about seven. But when I came back uh, about a year later, I got pregnant. And that was when I decided it was right at my 10-year point. And so um, I decided to get out. Did you feel safe in your plane flying those combat missions? For the most part, yes. The first couple of missions, you're kind of on pins and needles. You're just hyper aware of everything that's going on, just kind of waiting for something to happen. And then it kind of gets to be a habit. And not that you are not careful or, you know, doing your doing your job, but there's that hyper awareness that kind of goes away. What was your mission? What were you in charge of doing? So a lot of times we would either support the ground troops if they needed air cover or they needed uh, some close air support. We also did a lot of, because we had, had a, a targeting pod that uh, was infrared, we were able to tell when the soil, the ground had been turned over, which usually meant that there was an IED in place. And so we would go and uh, track the um, electric grids, power lines, the oil pipelines, things like that, infrastructure, where a lot of IEDs got placed, and also along roads where there was going to be troop movement. So we would help kind of try and find those so that our, our ground guys weren't just kind of stumbling upon them. Were you fired upon ever? I'm sure you were. And if so, was yeah. it even close? Uh, not really. We got some uh, just bullet tracers, things like that, but we were above 10,000 feet. So it really was, you could see them, but they were pretty much well below us. But I do have an interesting story where I thought I was getting shot at by a, I a service to airmen. I heard story so. on the podcast with Wiz, so share this. This is really interesting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's probably, I didn't have any, any, you know, other really interesting or weird things that I saw. Uh, I can't speak to any UFOs or any of those oh, kinds of things. No, you never know. <laughs> because I forgot to ask Wiz about that. So I thought, I have to ask Erin. I'm sure she saw something up there. No, just this. So we had it gone and we were doing a mission up in Mosul. And usually when we would uh, come into our, our window, you know, where we were doing things in country, we would start in the north and work our way back south so that we could exit and go back down the Gulf to Al-Yudi Air Force Base. And there unexpectedly was a lot of um, ground stuff going on in Mosul. So they sent us up there for pretty much most of our uh, window. And because of that, we just tanked maybe uh, 45 minutes. So we had a lot of fuel. And rather than, you know, kind of coming back, usually we would hit a tanker in the very southern part of Iraq before you left just to make sure that you had enough gas to come home, but we were pretty well off. And so we actually sky hooked back. Usually we would kind of go fly in the 20 to 24 ish range up and down um, the Gulf. But because we were so far North and we had so far to go, we actually came back about 36,000 feet, which is, yeah. if you're going from, you know, the, the East coast to the West coast of the U S a lot of commercial airliners are flying, you know, up in this altitude range. And it's the middle of the night. It's about three or four in the morning. We had left Iraq and my back scanner was asleep. <laughs> my flight lead was about two miles in front of me. So didn't really see anything that was about to happen because he was ahead of us. We were a beam Kuwait city. You can see all the skylight, you know, from, from the city, which meant that Iran was over here on, on my left-hand side. We're headed south down the, down the Gulf. And all of a sudden there's this bright light over here on the left and I look and it starts tracking towards us it was like my first thought was oh my god they're firing at me <laughs> and so I look inside the cockpit and none of my raw gear was going off there was no warnings that would typically be associated with 
you know, some type of surface to air missile launch. So I look back and then I realized what it was and I calmed down a little and I watched and this bright light just, it kept coming right towards us, went over my canopy, no more than 5,000 feet. It was huge and bright. And I was like, oh my God, do you see that? And my backseater's like <laughs> snoring in the backseat. He, he totally missed it. But I watched and it was this meteor that just went across the sky. It was just after I got off over the initial fright of being shot at, I just, it was my own personal shooting star. Do you <laughs> have really any cool. idea how big it was? You know, big enough that it lasts. I mean, you, when you see most of the shooting stars at night, right, they last for not even a second. They're pretty far away. I mean, this was literally maybe 5,000 feet above me. So it had made it pretty far down into the atmosphere and it continued all the way across the horizon past Kuwait City. And when I got down, I looked it up and, you know, there were all these sightings over Kuwait City of this meteor. And I have no idea where it ended up landing, but for it to have gotten that low, I mean, it was, it was pretty big. Let's talk a minute about um, the air refueling, which I think is fascinating. And of course, the anniversary just came, what, a few months ago. And what's so interesting, the um, we had, it flew right over my circle. They were doing it here in Utah, the anniversary. Oh, and I didn't okay. realize what was going on that day. And all of a sudden, <laughs> I just hear, I swear, it was 20 feet. I'm sure it was higher than that. But it went, went right over my cul-de-sac and, you know, celebrating the anniversary of um, in-air refueling. That is mm. such an amazing thing to see. What is that like being up in the air, having that happen? Because it's very precise. It's a precise dance. It is. It is probably the most difficult formation of flying that regular Air Force pilots have to do. The The Thunderbirds get into a lot of that um, and they're even, even more precise. But yes, you're in a very small window and you're beneath a fairly large plane when it comes to, you know, turbulent air and things like that. And a lot of times you have to do it in weather, which you get some really bad spatial disorientation that makes flying it even, even worse. So it, it is definitely the most challenging formation flying that we and do. And it's not natural to be that close to another airplane in the sky. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, yeah, so like I said, we we do a lot of formation flying. And so when we fly with another strike eagle, we have got three foot wingtip spacing between really? us. That yes. close? Yes, because then the reason why we did it before radars really became prevalent on all of our aircraft, if you're going to fly through weather and you want to stay together, you need to be close enough that you can still see the other aircraft while you're in a cloud. I had no idea it was that close. Wow, you better yeah. know what you're doing up there. <laughs> it can yes. be tragic. What is that like as a woman on deployment surrounded by a bunch of men? At the time, it was challenging, yeah. um, both because of the squadron and just for personal reasons. Um I, I would like to think, or I, I would like to hope that it's gotten better as more and more women have deployed and been out there with the squadrons. Um, everyone has kind of a, a different story. Yeah. And I recently spoke with, his name is Steve Brown. He is a former Navy SEAL and he runs a camp in Kentucky. And one of the things that he does there, of course, is he has veterans come with PTS and something I think, and I'm not attributing this to you at all. Please don't think I am. Um, but I'm sure you heard things about that is one of the things that he is dealing with for men and women is the military sexual trauma. Because where PTS is coming out more and more, do you not find that that is still in the shadows? Like no one wants to talk about it. And when I was yeah. speaking to him, he said, you talk about it and you're the one who gets in trouble because yes. they don't want to it's... deal with it. They don't want anybody to know that it's happening. Yes. Um, I was not sexually assaulted or raped, but I know 
a few women who were. And when I first talked to, to Wiz um, about No Fallen Heroes and about them trying to really start getting more female veterans involved and, and helping them, he said, you know, we still, we're not finding, you know, any, any female veterans, female pilots that are kind of coming out. Um, you know, why is that? And I said, you know, he recognized, you know, realized after talking to me and talking to several other women that, you know, our issues were more related to the sexual harassment, the sexual assault, rape than anything combat related. And he just kind of went, oh, wow. And why we are, really need to help women. Yeah. Why are women afraid or why don't they want to talk about it even if they're out of the service? They're out of the service. There's no repercussions that way. What is the stigma behind that? I think it's just in general, right? This isn't just a military problem. This is about sexual right. assault and, and, and the perception of rape um, across the country. And the Me Too movement was really trying to, I think, combat that. But, you know, we're still very much in a society that says, well, you had it coming, you know, a, a woman dresses a certain way. And well, you know, she was asking for it. We were in a military dominated um you know, community, what did you expect, you know, which is awful. And so a lot of these women, instead of being recognized as victims, they're just made to feel even worse that, that they were at fault for some reason. And do you think in the back of their minds that that's part of it as well as the shame and they're wondering, what did I do? Was some of this my fault? You would have to ask those those women. I think the other part of it was, and this is, you know, kind of, so I, like I said, I wasn't sexually right. assaulted. I wasn't raped, um, but there was definitely sexual harassment. And again, it's one of those things you put in a little box and you file away. And part of it was you didn't want to rock the boat. You know, 1993, I graduated in 97. So there'd been a first wave of women flying fighters, but we all were one, just happy to be there. And we didn't want to give anyone any reason why they should take it away from us, right? We didn't want to rock the boat. We didn't want to cause problems. We just, we just, we just wanted to fly, right? We just wanted to be part of, of the mission. Those things that happened ended up being put in boxes and put away so that we could focus on, on being part of the mission. Are you comfortable today if a young woman comes to you and says, I want to join the Air Force, I want to join the military, would you say go for it? Uh, <laughs> that's kind of a loaded question these days. <laughs> Maybe with some words of advice. How's that? Maybe with some words of advice. And, you know, it, it's more, I think, some of the political aspects that have come into play in the last few years that may may have changed what I what I said Five, 10 years ago, I would have been, go for it. It's great. And, and the flying itself is is awesome if that's what they want to do. There's just some other aspects to it to, to take into consideration these days. What was it like the first time you broke the sound barrier? Was it even something to celebrate or not really? It was very underwhelming. Um, <laughs> you really, honestly, when it's <laughs> happening, you don't actually know. Um, other than the fact that the jet starts to respond differently, um, the flight controls kind of all turn to mush and, you know, that, that they kind all of thing. Turn to mush. <laughs> kind of, they're just, they're not as responsive. That's kind of scary. <laughs> they're, they're, they're mushy. That's well, scary. you know, and, and, and yes and no, I mean, they still work, it's not a, but, but they're, they're just, just mushy. A difference. There's, there's a different response to it. And most of our aircraft um, while you can fly supersonic and you can fly the Strike Eagle supersonic and, and do all that, um, it's not really intended to be in that envelope for long periods of time and to, yeah. to do its mission. In fact, if we're carrying bombs, we can't even go supersonic. You can, <laughs> you're going to um, overstress the bombs, um, the laser guided bombs, at least. So, you know, we had some limitations. So it was, it was really kind of underwhelming. <laughs> so funny story, not me, but when I was an instructor... One of my good friends, and he's actually the reason uh, how I got into to know Wiz and No Fallen Heroes. He was kind of a character. He was always kind of playing, trying to play one over on the students. And so, as a T thirty eight instructor, the 
T38, you get one ride supersonic to just, again, kind of see that it's really not anything special. And so he's briefing this kid and in the T38, you're sitting front to back. So the student sits up front, the instructor sits in the back. You know, he starts out the briefing. He's like, look, we got to brief this really well. I need you to be on point and and be sure of all, what all we're doing. Because when we go supersonic, you're sitting in front of me. I'm not going to be able to hear you. And the kid's eyes just got really big. And we're all just kind of sitting around <laughs> laughing under our breath. But the student bought it hook, line, and sinker. And so apparently they go out and and they, you know, get up and they get into their, their airspace window. They go supersonic. And so the guy goes, hey, that's not what we briefed. And then the student apparently was like, what's going on, sir? Wait, I, how can I hear you? And he's like, dude, really? Are you kidding me? <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. Did you carry bombs then? Did you drop any? Um, I did not. Okay. So the the one time that we were actually, it was the same night um, as the meteor that I saw. Uh, we were supposed to drop bombs and our targeting pod was malfunctioning. And so we weren't able to drop. Do you miss flying that F-15? I do. I miss going upside down. I miss pulling Gs. I, so I, when I got out of the Air Force, I went to work for Westinghouse as a <laughs> program manager for a number of years. And then in 2019, a lot of my friends who had gone to the commercial airlines said, you know, Aero, come back. You know, we need pilots. You should, you should come back to the cockpit and go fly for a commercial airline. And so I did. I left in 2019 and went to uh, a regional for American. And then COVID hit and I got furloughed. That <laughs> so I went like back to Western Yeah, yeah kind of similar, different, different circumstance. Right. But, um, in the process, I realized the commercial flying, uh, it's kind of like being a glorified bus driver. <laughs> it wasn't really the kind of flying I like to do. I mean, it was still flying, don't get me wrong. There were some really great aspects and the views are just amazing. But uh, I really do miss going upside down and pulling G's. Oh, my god! I need to get, to get in, in Wiz's L39 sometime. Oh, gosh. Yuck. Did you lose friends? I want to say, did you lose more people on deployment or after? I think it's about even. Really? At this point. Um the Air Force flying is not nearly as right. um, boots on the ground. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, flying off of a carrier, there's a lot of risk. Um, there's a lot of things that uh, go wrong, can go wrong uh, flying for the Navy. So those guys, you know, have a lot, have enormous respect for them. So we didn't run into a whole lot of training, although we did have some um, one training accident and then we did lose two crews. Um, in combat, uh, during combat situations. Uh, but I've had, you know, a couple people now after, in fact, uh, one of the first female uh, fighter pilots, unfortunately, took her life a couple months ago. Oh, that's tragic. That is so tragic, Erin. Yeah. When I was speaking to Steve Brown again, one of the things that he mentioned, which totally floored me, is he, I can't remember what he said his source was, but this source told him that it's not 22 a day. It's more like 44. Yeah, correct. So there have been studies uh, by Duke and some other fairly well-renowned <laughs> school that looked at the VA records and realized that they were only accounting for, I forget how they phrased it, but basically violent taking of the life, i.e. somebody shot themselves or, um, you know, hung themselves, th those types of suicides. And they were not accounting for uh, things like, you know, a drug overdose. How tragic so, is that? It makes me so angry to think that our veterans are not getting the help that you also desperately need. And that's why I want to switch over now and talk about that. Before we move on to where you really found your help, did you bring anything back with you? Any monsters, any PTS, or the things that you were dealing with, was that more from an earlier period in your life that just kind of manifested itself through everything that had happened with the deployments and all of that stress? 
Um, so the, you know, there were some, some things that happened on deployment that, um, you know, weren't combat related. They were more on that sexual harassment spectrum and they were just, you know, one of many things that kind of added up. So there was some of that. Um, and then a lot of it was a personal related to my marriage and how kind of things certain things happened while I was deployed. And so that added to, to things when I came back. Did you have any PTS? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I would say I probably have some PTS from, from my marriage um, and definitely some bouts of depression. Um, I was diagnosed with postpartum depression after I had my son. Oh, that's hard. And it is. <laughs> And again, that's another one of those stigma things that it's very hard for women to talk about, just like the the sexual assaults and the rapes. You got out of the Air Force in what year? 2008. And did things really start to unravel then, or was it over time that it was just an accumulation of things really built up? It was an accumulation. Um I ended up getting divorced in 2013, um, but my marriage had kind of been rocky for many years prior to that. And even after uh, the divorce, uh, I think I just accumulated so much stuff that it, it was starting to be overwhelming. What kind of help did you try to get? And did you not want help at first? Like, I can do this. I'm, I, there was one woman that I spoke to was in, um, the army, you know, and she had PTS, major PTS. And one of the things that she said is she's just like, I'm a soldier. I can handle this. I can deal with it. Did you ever have that in your head? I'm in the military. I'm strong. I can deal with this. I'll get over it. Yeah. I'm a fighter pilot. Um, you know, uh, very much so. I'm, I'm, I'm not a person that asks for help. I was on um, antidepressant for uh, about a year for my postpartum depression. But again, it was one of those I didn't didn't like being on it, didn't feel like I should be on it. I felt I should be able to handle that on my own. So I convinced my doctor to to let me come off of it. I went and saw a therapist for a little while. After I kind of decided to get a divorce, though, I figured I'm good now. I've gotten through all that without really realizing that that's just that was just kind of a starting point but again I figured I should be able to get through this on my own I shouldn't you know you should be able to power through it when I you know there's a lot of and and Wiz talks about this we're trying not to trauma compare or have anyone in the military that we're trying to help through no fallen heroes compare right you're if it's affecting you, if it's causing you depression, if it's causing you PTS, it's, it's trauma and it's something that you need to deal with it. And nobody has better trauma or more severe trauma or more trauma. It's just trauma. And if you have it, you need to, to, to deal with it. But there's a lot of people, again, military that thinks, you know, I don't, I don't have it that bad. I, you know, I didn't, I didn't see some of my best friends and squadron mates get get blown oh, no. up by an IED, right? Um, I should be able to deal with this. How were you introduced to No Fallen Heroes? One of the guys that I was an instructor with, the one who I told the story about the, the supersonic flight, we've stayed friends um, since we were instructors, probably going on like 20, 25 years. And about, uh, I guess it was, three years ago, two years ago, um, I saw some stuff that he had posted on social media and and we still kept in touch, but it wasn't, you know, on a regular kind of basis. But after I saw that, I reached out to him and said, I need to hear more about this because I'd been following along the research for a number of years. I'm a huge fan of the Tim Ferriss podcast, and he's probably had, I don't know, you know, going on double digit episodes regarding plant medicine and psychedelic treatments for depression and PTS, drug and alcohol addiction. And at the time, very 
I guess, straight-laced, naive, innocent kind of person. I've never, I'd never done any type of hard drugs, never done marijuana. Um, you know, alcohol was kind of the extent of what, what I used to self-medicate. And so I had no idea how to get involved or do anything with regard to psychedelics. Uh, I wasn't near a treatment facility to volunteer for a clinical trial. And so when uh, my friend Patrick saw that he had done that stuff, I said, how did you get involved? I, I really need this. And I don't know if Wiz brought this up on yours, but, you know, he talks about it a lot. Everyone in the community actually talks about it and people laugh. Um, but it's, it's so true. The medicine calls to you, the, these, these treatments will call to you if they're the right situation for you. And do you think it calls to you because you've tried so many other things that you'll explore things that maybe normally wouldn't? Um, no, not necessarily because there's plenty of, of veterans who we talk to that you know, go that that's just that's I'm not ready for that. Even though they've tried all kinds of other options, they're just not ready to take that last step. But when when you are, it, it, you you'll know. Like like I said, it, the medicine kind of calls to you and it says this is this is right. I shouldn't say it's funny, but it kind of is, Erin, because I listened to that episode that you did with Wiz, and um. <laughs> Yeah, that was a long night of this isn't working. This isn't working. Can you share that with us? <laughs> I don't feel anything. Am I supposed to be feeling uh, something? Yeah. And, you know, again, it goes back to exactly, it, it, it was what I needed, right? Um, my biggest problem and biggest issue was that I, I beat myself up, right? My, my life and all of these things that I put in boxes and put away, to me, were examples of how I had failed. I had failed at being a fighter pilot. I'd failed at being a wife. I'd failed at being a mom. I'd failed at all kinds of kinds of things. And as I was laying there um, with Iboga, again, it, I felt like a failure. I felt like, I, you know, I was expecting, and I, 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 I wasn't, I wasn't, you know, I'd heard enough times people go, this, you're, you're, your journey is going to be completely different, but this is what happened to me. But when you hear enough people say, oh, I went off and, you know, took a tour of the universe and saw That's all this stuff. Kind of or, had, right? That's what he Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or you revisit some of the traumatic situations and I wasn't even doing that. that is it a I, like, what, I am what, a failure. What is it? Oh, no. <laughs> um, so it is the roots of um, the aboga tree and they kind of grind it up into, they call it wood chip. It is not a powder. It is definitely something that you have to to chew. Okay. So they're giving you this spoonful of these wood chips that you you can either swallow them or um, at, we we were the big league chewers. Every one of us decided to chew this these okay. uh, boga chips. So, so they give it to you, and you're not feeling anything different. At least I thought so, at least. And then even then when I was feeling something and seeing some visuals, it wasn't, it wasn't anything that I could discern as being helpful. And really it was, you know, I was in a, a, a BFM engagement. I was, you know, fighting myself. I was fighting my ego because that's really what needed to happen. I needed to let go of this ideal that, so many things in my life had had created to my detriment, right? Um, whole, you know, all kinds of things growing up through my marriage, through the Air Force. I had created this ideal of who I was supposed to be, and I was constantly comparing myself to that ideal and and failing. And what really needed to happen was I needed to get rid of that ideal. I needed to get rid of that control that my ego had over me. How long does this process take? How long is this session? I don't even know what you would call it. <laughs> uh, it it kind of depends on the person. They start the ceremony at nine o'clock at night. And at six o'clock in the morning, you've come down enough that you're able to kind of move back to your room. But there's a lot of people that kind of continue on 
feeling the effects of it throughout the day. So it can be anywhere from, from nine hours to 12 hours to 18 hours. It really depends on the person. It depends on how much they actually ended up taking. And what about for you? Uh, so both of mine, I would say probably lasted about 12 to 15 hours. So you had two, two sessions. Yes. Did you find any relief from the first one? Cause I thought Wiz told me he just did it once and that was like, you only need to do it once. Uh, so he, he has done, uh, he's, he's kind of a psychonaut at this point. He did Ibogaine, which is the yes. main alkaloid in Iboga okay. that they pull out. So he did it in Ibogaine journey where they just okay. did, they did Ibogaine and then they did 5-MeO-DMT. But for the Iboga, you do two journeys. It's a week okay. um, instead of just like a weekend kind of thing. Yes, I did. I, uh, if I had only done one journey, it would have helped. The fact that I had a second one made it even more beneficial and, and helpful. And did you find both the journeys the same or were they different? No, they were, they were different, but the point was still the same in that. So the first one was a learning to let go of that ego to quiet that, that voice that was constant in my head. And then the second one was, did you learn after the first one? So it was almost like a test flight, a check ride to go, okay, you did get it. You understand. You're ready to, to continue. Do you know immediately after that second one that there have been some big changes? I, I knew after the first one. How could you tell? That voice was gone. It was, I mean, it, it kind of comes back every once in a while. But that next day, uh, at one point, I just kind of sat there and I was listening to the the jungle and the the noises and going, it just kind of struck me that there was not that constant nagging, picking voice in my head. It was, it was quiet. <laughs> Are those two times... Will those take you through your life or will you need to go back? I don't know. Um, they were enough for the healing that I needed to really kind of turn my life around, to turn my, um, get out of the hole I had kind of stuck myself in. If I do anything further, it would be more, I think, exploratory to see what else there is. Now, I know for Wiz, he does yoga, he does meditation, breath work. Are there things that you do now for your mental health to keep you going in the right direction? So since I've been back, uh, it, today was actually day 200. I have meditated every day since I have been back um, for at least 20 minutes. And there have been some days where I've done two meditations and there's been some days where I've done longer ones. Um, but I've been meditating every day. You and... have to build up for that because I have, my husband tells me I have ADHD. <laughs> I've never been diagnosed, but he tells me I have ADHD because I'm like, blah, 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 blah. oh, look, there's a cat, you know, just I'm all over the place. Is that something you had to build up for to empty your mind because if I try to meditate even for two minutes my mind is just I can't silence everything no it, it's really hard and I don't have ADHD it's it's a practice that's why they call it a practice it's, it's no one is ever perfect at it I don't think anybody would tell you that they've had a maybe the Dalai Lama has had sessions where they go the entire time without thinking a thought <laughs> Right. But the point is that instead of having those thoughts and getting involved with them, right, you start doing a grocery list and, and now all of a sudden you, you, you get you know, through the whole one or, and you're now you're worrying about how you're going to pay for it. At some point, you you catch yourself and you realize yeah, that's not important and you and you let it go. Right. And so the goal is really to create the spaces in between those thoughts and recognize that you're in a space where you're not having a thought and. You try and make those as long as possible, but they're going. You know, thoughts are going to come up, and so the point is to to be able to just kind of 
let them flow back, flow back out and to recognize that you're having a thought when you're not supposed to, right? What do you want to tell veterans who are struggling, who need help, but maybe don't know where to go for it, or who maybe just wonder if they're worth the help? Healing, healing is possible. Everyone deserves healing. We need to be healing Americans in America. There, there is hope. There is hope and nobody is, is beyond healing. I truly, truly believe that. And so now are you working with No Fallen Heroes? You are, aren't you? Uh, in, a, in a very limited capacity. Okay. I'm not on the board or anything like that. I absolutely support them. I give them my monetary donations. When Wiz asks me to do things in support of, of the foundation, I, I'm, I'm happy to help. Um, I certainly promote it as much as I can. So you are a third degree black belt in Taekwondo. Yes. (laughs) Do you still do Taekwondo? Because I would think that would be good for your mental health as well as physically. Um, It probably would. And it really helped me (laughs) at the time during my divorce. (laughs) Uh, But I have not uh, in recent years, I've kind of um, struggled a little bit with money and, and being able to afford some things. So that was one thing that, that kind of fell off. How old is your son now? And do you feel like you can be a better mother to him? Not that I'm sure you were a fine mother before because you were really hard on yourself, but do you feel like you can be a better mother because you have taken care of yourself because you have Absolutely. done the things that you need to mentally to be a better mother? Yeah. Absolutely. My, my son is 16. Oh, that's a hard age. So... I've got one of those. <laughs> yeah. No, it's actually, I'm really enjoying it. Knock on wood. He, he's been a pretty good teenager. Yes. I feel absolutely feel like I'm a better mom and I feel like I've been able to start bringing a new perspective so that hopefully it doesn't take him 48 years to learn some of the things that I have learned and that he's able to, to make better decisions and, and really kind of understand his own mental and emotional well-being and, and work on those and not be afraid to talk about them. You know, that's part of the other stigma with mental yeah. illness. And I think why a lot of veterans don't reach out, right? One, they're just not used to asking for help, but there's still just such a negative connotation with mental health and, and struggles that um, they don't want to talk about it. They don't want to admit it. And hopefully he won't be to that point where he won't ask for help if he, if he ever gets to the point where he needs it. So, of course, we've spoken about No Fallen Heroes. Are there any other veteran organizations that you recommend to people? Yes. Yeah, so my family has been going to a ranch in Montana, Upper Canyon Outfitters, for going on 30 years. It's a f- amazing, amazing ranch owned by uh, originally the Tate family. And, and Donna Tate McDonald uh, is now the owner. She and her husband and her daughter works at the ranch as well. And they have a Cassie, uh, their daughter, has a veteran-supported charity called Upper Canyon Outreach. And so she does equine-facilitated learning for veterans and first responder organization. And it is just, she's amazing. The the therapeutic use of horses just surprises people. And psychedelics is a little bit too radical. I know Wiz talks about this radical healing for radical everyone. Yeah. (laughs) Not for everyone. Uh, you know, and if you've tried yoga and some of these other things, equine facilitated learning is another great modality for people who are struggling. And, and Cassie's Upper Canyon Outreach really it goes to veterans. There are or organizations around the country that do equine facilitated learning just in general, but hers is a, a veteran um, for veterans. Are you able to fly still today? Are you able to get up and do that? Yeah, there's a, a local aero club uh, at an airport about 10 miles up the road. It's Ilianopel, Pennsylvania. So I can go run a single seat plane or a single engine plane if I want to. And one word, I'm curious, 
When you are up flying, can you think of one word that describes your feeling or your experience? Hard question, huh? <laughs> yeah, how to do it in one word. Um, I think I'm going to go with joy. Mm, I like that. I really like that. Well, I always end with the same question. But before, I just thought I want to ask you one other thing. Are you proud of your service in the Air Force? Absolutely. Good. With everything Absolutely. that has happened, you are proud of your mm -hmm. service. Absolutely. Awesome. All right, Erin. My last question. What does America mean to you? Oh, being an American means that you have rights and you have freedoms. And they can't be trampled on. They can't be modified. They can't be taken away. But on the other side of that coin, it means that you are also responsible and accountable for your own actions and for your own life. Well, thank you. Thank you so much <laughs> for sharing your American story with me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Another Fellow Patriot. Be sure to check the show notes for links to this week's guest. For more connection to the podcast, visit www.wethepeopleouramericanstory.com. And finally, be a voice, a strong voice, a voice for freedom. As Benjamin Franklin so eloquently stated, where liberty dwells, there is my country.